We now project Hillary Clinton will get three of the four electoral votes in Maine. Maine distributes its electoral votes uh, according to congressional districts. Donald Trump will get one. As hard as this is to believe, with slim majorities for Democrats in the Senate and the House, if you count the legal votes, it is possible. I easily win. If you count the illegal votes, they can try to steal the election from us. This is no longer an election. This is like Alice in Wonderland. Welcome, everyone, to episode three of the Committee on House Administration's podcast. We're here to talk about all things under the jurisdiction of the Committee on House Administration. And today, we're going to talk about the fundamentals of campaign finance. I've got three great guests here, and I'm going to introduce them all one at a time and then ask them the interesting question during introductions. So first off, I'm going to start with Joy Lee. Joy is joining us. She is the general counsel right now for the Republican State Leadership Committee, the RSLC, and the vice president for DC operations for the Republican National Lawyers Association. This is not your question, but am I going to be invited back after using a few different profanities at the last one? (laughs) You were a hit, and we, I hear, have a Christmas party coming up later this week, so we'd love to see you there. I will try to make it. I enjoyed my time over there and forgot that C-SPAN was filming it until somebody texted me and said, oh, (laughs) nice choice words you might have used that day. Um, But it was great, great time, great to see you. You know, previously... I know Joy served as an in-house counsel for the Republican National Committee and also the 2020 Republican National Convention. Um, But she also was working for the U.S. House of Representatives not too long ago for the Committee on House Administration. So she's done work for the 58th Presidential Inaugural Committee and Americans for Prosperity. So my question for you, Joy, out of that great resume... What was your favorite job? Oh, there's only one right answer, and we both know it. It's at the Committee of House Administration under uh, ranking member Rodney Davis. There we go. (laughs) There we go. I told Janine Bresso that you would say that, and she said, oh, no. Clearly, it would have been working with her. (laughs) Clearly, it would have been working with her at the convention. But, hey, I'm not going to doubt your honesty in answering that question, so thank you. And that's one for Davis zero for Bresso. All right. All right. Now we move on to our next guest. Our next guest is Caroline Hunter. Caroline was appointed, it was nominated to the Federal Election Commission by former President George W. Bush on May 6th of 2008. Her appointment was approved by the U.S. Senate on June 24th of that year. And Commissioner Hunter previously served as chair of the commission in 2012 and 2018 and vice chair in 2011 and 2017. Um, She also previously served as the vice chair of the U.S. Election Assistance Commission. Uh, Ms. Hunter was nominated to the EAC in 2006 and confirmed by the U.S. Senate on February 15th of 2007. She also previously served as deputy director of the White House Office of Public Liaison and served as the executive officer at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, Office of Citizenship, Immigration Services, Ombudsman. And I'm reading my handy, dandy little notes here. From 01 to 05, she was associate counsel and deputy counsel at the Republican National Committee, where she provided guidance on election law and the implementation of the Help America Vote Act. Ms. Hunter, your time working in the Bush administration. Were you intricately involved in helping Carl Rove program the Diebold machines 
to put erroneous votes in place in Ohio in 2004. <laughs> yes, I've heard that he was involved in that. And uh, it's unbelievable that pl- people actually believe that that happened. As you know, I've talked to several members of Congress that that seem to actually believe that, which is very scary to say the least. It is. It is. So are you saying that Carl would not be would not be capable <laughs> of doing something like that? I don't think he would be capable, and nor and I know he would not do that. <laughs> well, I hope you listen to this, Carl, because we're going to continue to uh, to talk about these things when it comes to election integrity. I'm really glad you're here, Caroline. It's great to be so here. Thank you, Ranking and, Member Davis. Thank you. Well, thank you. And last and certainly least is <laughs> our third guest, uh, my good friend Chris, Chris Winkleman. Uh, Chris. Is a partner at Holtzman Vogel serve, after serving as the general counsel to the National Republican Congressional Committee for three election cycles. Uh, while at the NRCC, uh, I know this firsthand. He advised members of Congress on how to stay within the bounds of the laws of campaign finance, and he was a great friend and a great advocate uh, for this committee when we were fighting against the Democrats' initial takeover of our national election process with H.R. 1. Uh, Chris began his legal career as a judicial law clerk at the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. And during his term, he handled appeals brought by veterans who were dissatisfied with the level of benefits awarded by the VA. And previously, Chris served at the U.S. District Court for the Middle District of Florida. You know, we've got something something in common here. and it's we both graduated from small liberal arts colleges. So Rollins College is in Florida. It's in Winter Park, Florida. In just Winter Park, Florida, Orlando, so central yes. Florida. Yeah. And then you graduated law school from Stetson University, right? Yes. You didn't have to wear the cologne or the cowboy hat. There's no hat requirement at okay. Stetson. No. All right. All right. Have you heard about Stetson cologne? I have, yeah. Okay. It's under the same, you know, same categories like Jovan Musk, Brute. The only person in America that I know still wears brute is the lieutenant governor of Arkansas, Tim Griffin. So there is still a marketplace maybe for Stetson Cologne. But my question to you, Chris, is this. Because you did your your college career and post-college career in Central Florida, were you required as part of that education to be a Disney character? I was never required, uh, certainly encouraged. But um, there is a requirement to spend a certain number of hours a week at the pool. There is also a requirement to take uh, scuba diving and golf for electives. (laughs) Well, we certainly don't have that requirement at the Harvard of the Midwest, Millican University in Decatur, (laughs) Illinois. Um, Here we are. We're talking about campaign finance. Such exciting issues to address. But you know what? They're very important. And they're very applicable to what we're doing here in Congress today. And I want to start with you, uh, Commissioner Hunter. In the aftermath of the Watergate scandal, let's give our listeners a little bit of history as to, you know, the Federal Election Commission Act was was established. The Federal Commission was established to enforce the Federal Election Campaign Act. I'd like to first begin asking you what political entities are regulated by the FEC? Excellent. And thank you again for having us this morning. Ranking Member Davis, it's great to be here. So as you say, the Federal Election Commission regulates uh, cam- the campaign finance law and enforces it. And um, the organizations that, that, it, that it has jurisdiction over primarily are the political campaign committees. So the Republican National Committee, the Democrat National Committee, the DCCC, the R- RNC, I mean, excuse me, the, the um, NRCC. NRCC. <laughs> 
and uh, the other party committees, and also Super PACs, which is a relatively new creation, um, post several different lost uh, court cases, and um, regular PACs, which are often connected to a corporation, and those give those collect money from employees and give to candidates. And uh, finally, candidate committees, which you're very familiar with, and members of Congress or candidates can raise a certain amount of money and spend it on their election, and those are all regulated by the Federal Election Commission. So what entities are not regulated by the FEC in this arena? So all the other entities are not. Um, the FEC has some small amount of jurisdiction over nonprofit groups. So who, 501c3s. Yes, so 501c4s and, and 501c6s okay. who care to engage in elections by running independent expenditures or electioneering communications. Those, um, those communications must be reported to the Federal Election Commission. But it, it, since they since those organizations are not political committees, they are not regulated by the FEC except for when those entities decide to run independent expenditures or electioneering communications. Okay. Well, before we make everybody's eyes glaze over with the regulatory environment in and around the FEC, but this stuff is very interesting to me and it's very interesting to every member of Congress. Um, I see Chris over here is, is actually dozed off. <laughs> Uh, not because of you, Commissioner Hunter. I promise you that. It's because he's getting no sleep with a new son at home. Right? That's a fact. Yes, that is a that is a true fact. Congratulations on being a new dad. Thank you. Excited for you. Um, you know, Commissioner Hunter mentioned PACs. Mentioned super PACs. I mean, there has been a dramatic increase in the number of PACs that are active in the political space right now. Help our listeners understand the difference between a PAC and a super PAC. So the fundamental difference is that PACs generally make can make contributions directly to candidates and super PACs make independent expenditures in support of or opposition to candidates, but wholly independent of the candidates. With The reason you can do that is because PACs are funded with individual federally permissible dollars under the contribution limits, and super PACs can be funded with unlimited individual and corporate dollars. There is a bit of a misconception about super PACs, though. They are frequently called, quote, unquote, dark money groups, they do disclose their donors to the FEC, and they also disclose their expenditures. So as somebody who's been in a very targeted district for the last decade, um, it's been interesting to get criticized for corporate PAC donations. So can you explain to our listeners, I mean, what, what do these Democrats mean when they criticize people like me for taking corporate PAC dollars, and, and what is a corporate PAC compared to what you just mentioned with just PACs and super PACs? Sure. Uh, I think what they're attempting to do is conflate uh, PAC giving with corporate political activity. Corporate PACs uh, have the benefit of, being, of having their administrative and overhead costs funded by the general treasury of a corporation. But the downside of that is that they're only allowed to be funded by what's called a restricted class of donors. Those are individual people giving their own money. So, so wait a minute, wait a minute. Corporate PAC money is not corporate dollars? 100% correct. Oh, it is individual donors. That up. I, I tried to do that in each debate, but sometimes yeah, it's the strange. message doesn't get through. It's, uh, it's a group of individuals giving their individual personal money to a PAC that they believe furthers their interest uh, which is also known as activity covered by the First Amendment. Oh, 
free speech. There you go. First Amendment. That brings us to our third guest. Um, I, I think all of us here are big defenders of the First Amendment and, and the free speech that we should all be able to enjoy here in the United States of America. Joy, my favorite today since I was her favorite place that she worked. Again, that's two Davis, zero Brusso now. Um, you're a counsel to a political committee that's active in recruiting and training Republican candidates across the country. Uh, in this role, I want to ask you a couple of questions. In, in this role, um, you got to navigate teaching them how to interpret federal laws that Commissioner Hunter and Chris just talked about, but also state campaign finance laws. And why don't you answer that first, and then I'll ask you about free speech, and we'll kind of do a round robin on it. Absolutely. So the Republican State Leadership Committee, the RSLC, is a political committee, as you noted, that uh, works with uh, recruiting and uh, assisting and providing resources to Republican candidates for state elected offices. So it's uh, covering everything from lieutenant governors to uh, members of state house and state senate um, and secretaries of state and, and things of that sort. Um, in addition to the federal laws and regulations, of which there are many to navigate around, um, our, our real challenge is navigating around each state's campaign finance laws and regulations. And unfortunately for me, uh, each state has the authority to uh, set and determine their own campaign finance laws, their own contribution limits, their own source restrictions. Um, and their own registration and reporting requirements. Uh, so all of those will vary and differ state by state. Well, reporting requirements, disclosure. That's right. Disclosure is very important. Um, yeah, I'm in favor of making sure that we have uh, very stringent disclosure requirements so that anyone can go look to see who's participating in the political process. But it seems to me, Joy, it seems to me that there's been an attack on on what we would consider free speech. Uh, you don't have to look too much further than HR1. I think it would have been, a, had a, it would have, if, if enacted, if the Democrats would have been able to get this through the Senate, I think it would have had a dramatic impact on our ability to utilize the free speech that every American deserves. It's ironic, in my opinion, now you, you all may differ, but it's ironic that those who have clamored for freedoms, those who have clamored for uh, you know, calling government big brother, government was snooping on on, on the, the private activities of, of Americans, Democrats screamed these things during my first few terms in Congress. It seems to me now with HR1 and some of the provisions they propose, they, they just want to use the same tactics as a political weapon. So tell me about some of the fights that you're seeing even in different states um, in regards to free speech? And, you know, how does that impact where we are today in the electoral process? I think the two sides can be summarized down to a side for free speech, free expression, um, and in the interest of privacy, um, which really promotes more uh, and robust political expression. I think the other side, if we were to summarize what they believe, would be... Uh, in the interests or in the veiled interests of mitigating corruption and wanting um, to to 
to expose the influence, undue influence of special interests, right? So it's always a balance between the two. Um, and unfortunately, as you see on the federal level and on the state level, uh, the, the left is coming hard um, to, to want more disclosures and want more reporting requirements. I think in a lot of ways they may not understand the current reporting structures and what is already required under uh, the, the mechanisms already in place. Um, so we'll see efforts to uh, either expose true source of donations, so in states that allow uh, corporate contributions, um, but wanting further assurances of their corporate uh, board or donors um, and, and, and kind of the makings behind the scenes of, of that corporation. Um, we'll see it in the, the, the way that a political committee is even defined under a state statute, and that determines whether um, an entity is required to, to register and report. Um, so it spans across the board, but, but those are a few things. Well, Chris Winkleman, let me, let me turn to you, and then I want to get to the dysfunction at the FEC and some of the issues that were proposed in H.R. 1 with Commissioner Hunter. But, Chris, so you were at the NRCC when the NRCC had to operate under a consent decree for Election Day operations. Um, that is now gone. But during that same time that consent decree existed, we had the Citizens United case. And that Citizens United case allowed for more activity, you know, including some of the issues both of you addressed with super PACs and, and others. Uh, there's more opportunity to exercise your right to free speech and politics today. Um, as, as you look back at your time at the NRCC and as a campaign finance attorney right now, how has access to free speech changed in the post-Citizens United world? And, and what recommendations do you have to make it even better, and it, to, especially under, attack, under the attacks that we see today? So Citizens United, a lot of ink has been spilled and a lot of teeth gnashed about how terrible it is that money is in politics. Um, and in my opinion, all Citizens United did <clears throat> is highlight how restricted hard money entities are in working with their candidates. So all Citizens United did is make clear that uh, corporate money can be spent completely independent of candidates. That has always been a First Amendment truth. But what it highlighted is that as, as more soft money was spent, it became harder to spend hard money efficiently and effectively. So hard money entities like national party committees, state party committees, are limited to individual dollars under contribution limits. They have less resources than those soft money groups. And I believe that if people perceive a disparity in the playing field between outside groups and party committees and candidates, then the response should be to empower those hard money groups who are operating under contribution limits rather than restricting the speech of those who are properly ex exercising their First Amendment right. Uh, one of the biggest restrictions that is faced by candidates and party committees is the party coordinated limits. It's something that I've been uh, harping on for years. Everybody in this room has heard me talk about it, I'm sure. Um, it's a bit of a hobby horse. But if you were to ask anyone on the street what it is that a party committee does, to the extent they know what that is, they would probably tell you they work with their candidates and members to get them elected. They'd be surprised to hear that they're limited in the amount of money that a party committee can spend hand in glove with their own members. And was that because of McCain-Feingold? That's correct. So 
Citizens United really highlighted the unfairness that exists in regulating hard money committees. It didn't create some explosion of speech that is somehow impermissible. Do the, do the Democrats use these these groups? You, there is no doubt that Democrat soft money has gone far and away uh, higher and more spending in the last several cycles uh, than than Republican soft money. I think just the the Arabella Network, for example, in 2020, their tax returns were just released. 1.6 billion, with a B, was spent by the Arabella Network groups. Wow. Um, so, and that's just 2020. That's a year. It's not even a, an election cycle. Well, I, I, I've been through plenty of very costly campaigns. Sometimes I feel like $1.6 billion was spent for and against me. Um, but I also found it ironic. Uh, you know, you'd have a group uh, that, that has sprung up to get rid of Citizens United. It's, you know, conveniently called End Citizens United. Um, how do they get their money? That's a soft money group. It's a hybrid pack. So uh, it's a hybrid a, pack? That's right. They have a soft money account and a hard money account. So they have a hard money account, which are donors that are disclosed, but the soft money account that they have, they don't disclose donors? They do disclose their donors, but they make independent expenditures. So they can pick up a, a week of messaging in, in your oh. district against you. Oh, so the End Citizens United pack is political? That's correct. Oh, wow. What a shock. What a shock. Now, now we're going to talk to one of the regulators, you know, <laughs> who, who gets all these cases at the FEC after the election cycle, during an election cycle, and there's been a lot of talk about FEC dysfunction. I mean, I've had my, I've had my uh, back and forth opportunities with your your former chair uh, in regards to how uh, I believe an FEC commissioner should be behaving in the national news media, and how political they should or should not be. I mean, you're deciding, you're deciding um, whether to punish members of Congress of both parties, those who have, or, or any entity who's regulated by the FEC. Now, even with this dysfunction, explain to our listeners where the commissioners, stat, where the commissioners are right now in, in numbers, how many are appointed, what is a full commission, and what does it look like, and give us kind of a bird's eye view of what's happening now. Sure. Thank you. So as you know, there are six commissioners on the Federal Election Commission. Typically, three are from one party and three are from the, uh, the other party. You can't have more than three from one party. And that's the right way for the commission to be set up because it guarantees that any votes that the commission takes must be bipartisan. So you have to have one Democrat join the Republicans or one Republican join the Democrat in order to further almost anything that happens at the FEC. So that, let me ask you, let me do a follow-up real quick. So in H.R. 1, the Democrats' solution to what they consider the problems at the FEC was to make that commission partisan. That's right. And thank you to you and your colleagues for fighting back on that. That would have been a disaster for the First Amendment. It would have been a disaster for everybody who cares about political speech and participating in politics. It would have been terrible because they would have added us another commissioner. So there would have been seven commissioners or they would have made sure that the number was uneven. And the, the new chair of the commission under H.R. 1 would be appointed by the president. And they knew for they knew that it was going to be a Democrat president. And they would, of course, appoint a person 
person who was more regulatory and lined up with the democratic philosophy on these issues. And they would have also given the FEC a lot more power to regulate speech. Right now, the Republicans on the commission are able to stand up against the pro-regulatory approach that is taken by the Democrats on the commission and, unfortunately, many of the staff members at the commission. I wanted to turn that into a partisan show. That's right. And, and then the speech czar. Yes. Somebody appointed by the president of the United States, who's a Democrat at the time, would be in charge of regulating what type of speech candidates running for federal office under your jurisdiction could use. That's right. Wow. And, and they're unabashedly in favor of having the government decide who should speak and what the parameters are. And that's the thing that's always so shocking to me. You know, Democrats in Congress and on the FEC, they have no problem saying, oh, absolutely, I should be the arbiter of deciding who gets to speak, which is just stunning to me. And uh, again, thank you for your efforts to beat that back. So why is it so difficult to get new appointees to the FEC? On the Republican side, both sides. On both sides. Well, it's it's not it's not a very fun place to be. It's very cantankerous, and um, it's difficult to get regulations adopted because it's hard to find um, four votes for something because the philosophical underpinnings of the commissioners are so different. But um, sometimes it's better, in my opinion, not to have a rule than to have one that steps on the First Amendment. And so right. we we decided that that was a better way of going in a lot of cases. And, and that can be frustrating, but it's important work. And, and I think we have a good set of commissioners on the Republican side up there now. Well, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I had my my time and back and forth with former Chair Weintraub. Is she still on the commission? Yes, sir. She has been there for a very long time. She's still there. Oh, wow. So she's not chair anymore. She's not chair. Okay. I mean, I found it interesting... I would see her on CNN and MSNBC during the Trump administration, really just uh, going out and, you know, spouting Democratic talking points against the president. And, and, and that's somebody who you have to sit down and come up with a bipartisan agreement if there's any action against a member of Congress's committee, right? That's right. And I think a lot of what she did, unfortunately, was misleading the public on the jurisdiction of the Federal Election Commission. As we discussed earlier, our, our jurisdiction is the, the jurisdiction of the FEC is very limited. And she led people in the press to believe that the FEC had jurisdiction over a lot of issues over which we have no jurisdiction, including including election administration, including certain foreign national issues that are just inappropriate, in my opinion, to do. Well, it, it was certainly interesting, I can tell you that. Uh, but that's what we're here for. We're here to debate the issues. And Joy, you know, again, from the time you spent working with the greatest committee in the House, the Committee on House Administration, um, I know you've got some thoughts on the FEC. Uh, why don't you give us your thoughts on what's happening at the federal level, but you're also working with states. And give us an idea of a... <clears throat> excuse me, of a state that you work with that has what you would consider a model campaign finance system? I think that's a tough one, but I will try. Um, I think first in my mind right now are the 2021 elections, the state elections that we just had. So it's easy to compare 
the two states between Virginia and New Jersey, both of which we were engaged in in different ways. Um, well, who came out the winner in those states? Which party, <laughs> if you had to give one a, a, a victory? I'm happy to share that Virginia has turned back red. We awesome. uh, flipped the Virginia House, and of course we have a, a great slate of uh, Glenn Youngkin and uh, his administration ready to go in Virginia and New Jersey. Uh, unfortunately, not necessarily a flip, but just as exciting, I think, was that it was competitive. And I think that alone is pretty telling. Um, it but, was competitive. And then you had states like Minnesota uh, be, beat back attempts to defund the police. And states like New York that beat back referenda that would have allowed New York Democrats to can completely control the redistricting process again. And my biggest surprise at election night was I believe they elected a Republican district attorney in the city of Seattle. Remember the home to chop zone? I mean, you want to talk about what Democrats aren't doing in this country? They're not dealing with violent crime. And, and the local citizens who are worried about their own safety, they're worried about their property values. They're the ones that said, we've had enough with this liberal BS about using another word again that I use at the R in LA. You bring this stuff out of me, Joy. It must be my fault, sir. It's clearly, clearly, <laughs> clearly. Hey, uh, give us a state you think has a, a better model. Maybe not the best, but one that you've seen that works well. What I will say is I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all, and that's exactly what HR1 um, was trying to push down onto the states. There are states with very large uh, rural populations. There are states with large cities and different uh, demographics and considerations for that. So I think, first of all, there is no one-size-fits-all, and that'll depend on the needs of that state. Um, what I did appreciate about, about Virginia, and I think uh, was fair, was that they don't have contribution limits in Virginia. But what they do have is a reporting system um, and and rules around that that still allow for disclosures and um, for for a, a way to share what is needed to share in, in that sort of engagement. Um, they also have a mechanism of, uh, you know, allowing for um, entities that have um, federal that are already registered with the Federal Election Commission um, and recognizing that to dupl to uh, remove duplicate reporting requirements. And I think that's super helpful and efficient. Um, but but again, there is no one size fits all, unfortunately. Spoken like a true attorney. I'm not going to answer that question with a state by name, but I'm going to go back to my federalist principles, right? <laughs> I mean, that's where Winkleman learned, you know, those federalist principles at Stetson University while, you know, moonlighting as Minnie Mouse at Disney World. <laughs> so here we are. We're coming up to the end. I can't believe 30 minutes flew by like this. I hope you all had as much fun as I did. I'm going to ask you kind of a, a, a rapid response. I don't want a long answer. I just want to know quickly what your thoughts are uh, as what is the biggest threat to free speech that we face as a country right now. I will start in the same order that I introduced you all. Joy. Overreporting. Commissioner. The lack of understanding of the First Amendment. Minnie Mouse. <laughs> the immediate threat is HR1 or whatever iteration of that comes next. And the larger threat is a, a radical idea to pack the courts and prevent the backstopping of the shredding of the First Amendment. Great discussion. 
I know we're going to get some interest, uh, and I know we're going to have a lot of members of Congress and their team that are very, very interested in what all of you have had to say today. I want to say thank you for joining us for episode three. Uh, we're going to continue to bring out what we think is right to protect the American election system and our ability as Americans, who we are uniquely given this capabilities compared to so many other countries, that we ought to be able to exercise our First Amendment rights every single day without attacks from Democrats here in Washington. Thank you all for being here today. Look forward to working with you again. And uh, thanks for letting me uh, harass you a little bit too, Winkleman. <laughs> good luck. You. Congrats on the new son, buddy. Thank What's you. his name? Grant. Grant, that's great, buddy. How old now? Five and a half months. And he's Ooh, awesome. Sleeping all night? Uh, well, God bless my wife, who takes great care of him through the night. Oh, we got to have a talk. <laughs> I never had that luxury with my three. Hey, congrats. Great to see all of you. Look forward to working with you in the future.